I'd like to ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 23. We continue our study through the book of Proverbs, looking at different themes, topics of Christian discipleship that Proverbs addresses in many different places. We come this morning to the end of chapter 23. I'll pick up the reading in verse 29. This is God's word. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine. Those who go to try mixed wine. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart utter perverse things. You'll be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I wake? I must have another drink. Back in August, the Princeton Review magazine came out with their annual college rankings. They rank colleges according to many different categories, but the one that gets all the press is the category top party schools. Penn State moved up from number nine to number seven in the past year, although it does appear that the squelching of State Patty's Day has had an effect because in 2009, Penn State was number one in the nation. Now, calling Penn State the top party school or one of the top party schools in the nation, I'd like to think that that means that our students like to gather together, dance, and wear silly hats, but we all know that being a party school means that your students consume an inordinate amount of alcoholic beverages. Unfortunately, many students consider being in the top ten in that category, to quote one of them, a badge of honor. We Christians have struggled throughout the history of the church with how to respond both to the use and abuse of alcoholic beverages. Generally, Christians could be categorized, and this we're talking throughout church history, not just today, but generally, Christians can be categorized into one of three categories. The first category is prohibitionist. Those Christians in that frame of mind would say that All partaking of alcoholic beverages is forbidden by Scripture and is therefore a sin. A second category would be the abstentionist Christians who view that partaking of alcoholic beverages isn't expressly forbidden in Scripture, but in light of the abuse of alcoholic beverages in this cultural context, abstention from alcohol is the wise and the right choice for Christians. The third category of Christian thought on this topic is moderationist. The view that partaking of alcoholic beverages is allowed and even good so long as it is always in moderation and intoxication is avoided. 
Well, before we take some time to look at Proverbs and the rest of Scripture to see what Scripture has to say about this issue, I think it's probably good that I put my cards on the table. My brothers and, Christi- my brothers and sisters in Christ often don't know how to take me because I don't fit neatly in any one of those three categories. In theory, I'm a moderationist. I believe that it is allowed, according to Scripture, even good according to Scripture, to drink alcoholic beverages, particularly wine, in moderation. But in practice, I'm an abstentionist. I have chosen to not drink alcohol. I never have. Later, I'll give some what I feel to be biblical reasons, both in Proverbs and the rest of Scripture, why I think being a person who's moderationist in theory but abstentionist in practice is a good option, not a necessary option, but a good option for Christians. But I want to spell out before I begin to dissuade you of any wrong perceptions of why I've come to the conclusion I have. There's two reasons why I do not hold to that practice. The first reason that I do, is not a reason for why I don't drink alcohol is that I don't come from a home where alcohol was abused. So many of my Christian brothers and sisters have come from homes and backgrounds like that. I did not have an alcoholic dad who beat me. I did not have an alcoholic mother who neglected me. My family didn't drink. I was never told why. It just wasn't our tradition. It wasn't our practice. It wasn't even on my radar until I got to school anyway. Secondly, I do not come from a fundamentalist, legalist background church-wise either, where alcohol is taught to be the elixir of the devil. I have always believed, as a Christian, and I came to Christ as a 16-year-old teenager, I have always believed that I have the freedom to drink wine and some other alcoholic beverages, but I have contentedly chosen not to. Somewhat ironic, then, that I, by God's leading of his spirit in theology and church history and scriptural studies, it's kind of ironic that I've ended up in Reformed churches, because in our theological circles, brothers and sisters in Christ tend to reject the legalism of other types of churches and relish the Christian liberty to partake of alcoholic beverages. And so in these circles, people often don't know how to take me, a moderationist who abstains. If you don't drink alcohol as a Christian, they only have typically two categories for you. Either you're spiritually damaged or spiritually weak, or you're a judgmental legalist. And I hope I don't fall into either one of those categories. It's interesting, when I was interviewed for the senior position here at Oakwood Church, when people looked at my profile, I could tell by the interviews when I came to visit, when people looked at my profile, I think the only thing that put a red flag on my profile was the statement that I abstained from alcoholic beverages. I think there was a legitimate fear that I might be some kind of closet legalist. Well, I'm actually thankful for the opportunity to give a full explanation based in scripture this morning for why I do what I do. Some of you have been waiting three years to find out. Bottom line from scripture is that we are free to drink alcohol in moderation, but whether we choose to exercise that freedom in a specific situation or in general 
is not a one-size-fits-all kind of question or issue. It depends on the people and the circumstances involved. In my mind, it's always been somewhat like the question that Christian parents face with educating their children. Churches debate and fight over that, but the bottom line is, whether you send your child to a Christian school or a home, you homeschool your kids or you put them in public school, is not a one-size-fit-all issue. It depends upon the child, each individual child. It depends on the parents. It depends upon the school. It depends upon the circumstances. So as we look at the issue of alcoholic beverages, let's look at how Scripture portrays it. And the phrase that I came up with as kind of a bottom-line indicator of how the Scriptures present the use of alcoholic beverages is that we are to look at Wine in particular, and the Bible talks about wine in almost every case. That was the common alcoholic beverage in biblical times. It describes it as what I would call a dangerous blessing. In Psalm 104, verse 15, it says, God gives us wine to gladden the heart of man and bread to strengthen man's heart. Moving back here to Proverbs in chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, it says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats, your wine vats, will be bursting with wine. Now I know that there are a very small percentage of Christians who believe, those who are of the prohibitionist camp, who believe that when the Bible does speak, and they can't deny that the Bible speaks positively of wine in many cases, that they believe that that is actually grape juice that's described and that, that the Bible never speaks positively of fermented wine, but that is not a case that holds any water. In some ways, that would make it easier for us, give us a more black and white issue, but it's just not true. Matter of fact, when the Bible talks about God's blessing upon life, it often uses the imagery of feasting, and part of that feasting is often drinking fine wine. Matter of fact, it was a promise. When God gave his covenant promises to his people, the people of Israel, and he talked about the blessing and reward that would come upon them if they lived in faithfulness to the covenant, it uses that kind of terminology. Let me read to you from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 12. God says to his people, and because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock in the land that he swore to your fathers to give you. And interestingly, later on in the prophets, when they spoke prophetically of that great day when the Messiah would come and he would come in his final victory and put away all that is evil, put away death, and institute the new heavens and the new earth, it describes that final point, that great hope of our salvation, describes it again in this team, terms of this feasting with wine and fine foods. Isaiah chapter 25, beginning in verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. 
and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. In that day, it is, will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. That beautiful imagery of the great feast that awaits us when we celebrate the final work of salvation of Christ our Lord when he returns speaks of fine wine and fine foods. But along with presenting wine as an image of God's blessing upon us, from beginning to end of scripture, it is very clear, it repeatedly and consistently condemns drunkenness as a sin. Our culture makes light of drunkenness. Even we do a lot of joking about it, even in affectionate ways. But in God's word, it's no joking matter. Here in Proverbs 23, this passage we read a few moments ago, you have a very graphic, clear, accurate picture of someone in the state of intoxication. As he describes it there, those who tarry long over wine. And it's described in ominous terms. Verses 31 and 32 say, Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. And I think that's an intentional allusion when it talks about the serpent, that wine is like a serpent. That's what Satan does. Satan takes the good things, the blessings that God gives us in this created world, and then uses them to entice us to sin. And wine has is, is, is been used that way as much as any of God's good gifts. Several effects of intoxication are described here in this passage and elsewhere in Proverbs. First of all, let me try to summarize what they are. First of all, drunkenness increases our problems when we use it as an escape. Drunkenness increases our problems when we use it as an escape. Look at verse 29. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Those who tarry long over wine. I remember a comedian once said, I used to get high because I had no food in my refrigerator. Then I'd stay high for a week, and then when I came back down, somebody had stolen my refrigerator. I always thought that's such a good description of what addiction to drugs and alcohol does. You use it, to get away from your woe and your sorrow and your complaining. And lo and behold, when you come down from your high, all your problems are just worse, so you have to drink again. Secondly, drunkenness clouds your judgment and removes discernment. Look at verse 33. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart utter perverse things. Isn't that an accurate description of the state of intoxication? Think of Noah. And Lot, who compromised their morals, committed great sin while in the state of intoxication. You lose your sense of what's physically and spiritually true when you're in a state of drunkenness. Thirdly, drunkenness leads to physical harm. Harm that comes from the foolish behavior when you lose your discernment under drunkenness. We've had a lot of sad stories around the campus and even the short time that I've lived here. Students falling out of windows and off of balconies. 
things that are the result of foolish behavior committed in a state of drunkenness. Verse 29 speaks of wounds without cause. You wake up the next morning and say, why, why do I have these bruises? Why is my arm hurt? Why does my back hurt? I don't even remember what happened. Verse 35 says, they struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. A description of physical fighting in the midst of drunkenness. You don't feel it at the time, but in the morning you wonder, where did I get these bruises? You know, it's interesting when you think of that, that drunkenness is damaging to our bodies. When you think of the fact, and many do, Christians do point this out, that Paul says in the New Testament to his friend Timothy, he says, drink a little wine for the sake of your stomach. It's been fascinating to me how medical science has proven that in recent years, that moderate use of wine does have positive effects on our bodies. But drunkenness is always destructive, sometimes desperately destructive to our physical bodies, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Fourth, drunkenness wastes your resources. God has given you resources to be a good steward in this world. But Proverbs 21 verse 17 says, whoever loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. Or earlier here in chapter 23, beginning in verse 19, he says, hear my son and be wise and direct your heart in the way. Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat. For the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty and slumber will clothe them with rags. Drunkenness wastes the resources that God has given us to be stewards with. Fifth, drunkenness makes you a slave to sin. Don't really have to elaborate on this one. Isn't it interesting when you get to the end of the chapter, verse 35, after the drunkard describes all the effects that his drunkenness has had upon him, all these terrible effects, the drunkard says, as he awakes, I must have another drink. It's interesting to me that when you go to the New Testament, there are lots of exhortations to not be drunk, but it actually elevates drunkenness to a kind of a different level in the sense that drunkenness becomes kind of a defining characteristic of the lost, a defining characteristic of the unbeliever, of the pagan. In Romans 13, we read earlier in this service, it says, let us cast off the works of darkness, and then it lists what those works of darkness are, and drunkenness is a prominent one. In Galatians 5, Paul lists drunkenness among the works of the flesh. So drunkenness is a characteristic of the works of darkness and the works of the flesh. And so Paul says in Ephesians 5, verse 18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. And even to the point, it even singles out drunkenness to the, when, it's, when Paul talks about church discipline in 1 Corinthians 5. Listen to what he says, talking about the discipline of the church. He says... I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler not to even eat with such a one. So repeated drunkenness, unrepentant drunkenness, becomes an issue of church discipline. So, as I said, drinking alcohol or 
Wine in particular is a dangerous blessing. But in light of all those dangers, it does make you wonder, why would you drink alcohol? And I think there's one very good reason why many of you do and why it is good to partake of wine. And that's because the fruit of the vine is a gift from our creator for us to enjoy. It's in the same category as apple pie. Hot apple pie with ice cream. A beautiful waterfall, a beautiful sunset, a nice cool breeze on the beach of the ocean, sexual intimacy in marriage. These are all good gifts, physical, pleasurable gifts that God has given us to enjoy. And wine is in that category. And Paul makes it very clear in the New Testament that the spiritually mature response to rampant abuse of one of God's gifts isn't to legalistically remove the use of that gift from your life. That's not the spiritually mature response. The spiritually mature response is to thank God for that gift and then use it according to his will and enjoy it accordingly. That's what Paul's talking about in 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4 is one of the most powerful passages written against legalists who do take that approach to good gifts of God that sinners abuse, those who would be guilty of false asceticism. 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 5. Listen carefully to what Paul says. He says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God created, everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Every good gift of God's creation is made holy and acceptable in the life of the believer through thanksgiving and the word of God and prayer. Let me ask you the question. If you do ever struggle with the abuse of alcohol, how often would you abuse alcohol if you took a moment before you picked up that goblet of wine and you took a moment and thanked the Lord for this good gift and asked him for the wisdom and strength to use it wisely according to his will that you might enjoy it as he intended you to enjoy it. How often would you follow that prayer up by breaking his will and overindulging and becoming intoxicated? But having said all of that, having the freedom to drink wine according to God's will doesn't require us to drink wine. And I think there are some very good reasons. I have several reasons for you this morning why abstaining from alcoholic beverages is a good option, not the only option, but a good option for believers in certain contexts or, in my case, in all contexts in general. First of all, one good reason to abstain from alcohol. This one is necessary, depending on your age. Submission to the laws of the government. Romans 13, 1 and 2, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists 
the, the authorities resist what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. It is a sin to disobey the government, unless the government requires you to disobey the Lord Jesus Christ. Underage drinking of alcohol does not fall into the category of conscientious objection. Matter of fact, I think there's wisdom behind the government setting ages. I know there are Christians who disagree with me on this. I have good friends from South Africa who believe that children should be taught to drink alcohol well from the time they're very small children. I'm, I'm not sure. That's, that's actually an interesting strategy. It's another strategy to say you should wait until you're 21 to drink alcohol because th by then, hopefully, you have the maturity to drink it well and to drink it according to God's will. And I'll tell you, I wish our 18, 19, and 20-year-olds here in Pennsylvania had a better track record so we could say that they have the maturity to drink alcohol well, but they don't. If you're under the legal drinking age and you drink alcohol, you are sinning. You are not obeying the government. And the right thing to do is to abstain. That's the one of my, all, of all the reasons, that's the one that if you're in that category, it is kind of a black and white issue. There is no disputing that. The rest of these are wisdom issues. Where to apply them, how to apply them, in what situations. The second reason I have, it's good to abstain from drinking alcohol if rejection of peer pressure is the primary reason for your drinking. It's good to abstain from alcohol if rejection of peer pressure is the primary reason for not drinking. I read an article as I was doing research this week online is called Alcohol as an Escape from Perfectionism. There was a related article that it makes reference to in the midst of it called Stop Calling It Mummy Juice. It's about a mother who had a sudden awakening about a year ago. It says this time quoting the mother, says, this time last year I became mindful about my relationship with alcohol, she says. Was I having a drink to deal with anxiety? Was I self-medicating? She decided to give up alcohol altogether, the article goes on, and not because she had become an alcoholic. This is the phrase that caught my attention. That's when the pushback started. Pretty much everyone I know is heavily into alcohol, she says, they disguise it as something sophisticated or chic. It's uncomfortable when you don't drink. People ask me over and over again incredulously, have you stopped drinking altogether? You know what it's like. It starts in high school and unfortunately oftentimes even starts in middle school. You're not cool if you don't drink. But let's be honest, it continues all the way through adulthood, doesn't it? And it also happens too often in the church, where we reflect our culture by imposing upon one another this cool standard. There is a lot of subtle boasting among Christians who exercise their liberty to drink because it makes them look hip and edgy and progressive. And I am here to say that if your main reason for drinking alcohol is because of peer pressure. If your main reason for drinking alcohol is to look hip and edgy and progressive in the eyes of your fellow believers, 
then what's motivating your drinking is pride, and pride is always a sin, even if the drinking itself isn't. Third reason to abstain from drinking alcohol as a believer, and this is an important one, love for the weaker brothers and sisters among us. We are surrounded in the church of Jesus Christ by many Christian brothers and sisters who either believe that drinking is wrong, they're misunderstanding the scriptures, but they genuinely, sincerely, passionately believe that drinking is wrong, or they come from alcoholic families or histories that make them susceptible to falling into the sin of abusing alcohol. And we need to love those brothers and sisters and not put a stumbling block in their path. Romans 14 is one of two long New Testament passages where Paul goes on and on about the responsibility of mature Christians who understand the scriptures and understand the freedoms that we have in Christ. It puts it on them to give up that freedom, that freedom, that Christian liberty, for the sake of less mature brothers if it's going to cause them to stumble. Let me read just a part of Romans, of Romans chapter 14 where Paul talks about this. He talks, in this context, of course, he's talking about meat that's been offered to idols, and that's what the Christians were disagreeing about. Some felt it was wrong, some knew that it was okay. And Paul sides with the strong, mature believers on the, the theological dispute or the moral dispute. But what he says is, think about your weaker brothers and sisters, those with whom you disagree, on both sides of the argument. He says in verse 3, let not the one who eats, we should say, we could say in this, our context, drinks, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. And then down in verse 13, therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus Christ that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Reminds me of another passage, the other long passage where Paul is dealing with this issue in 1 Corinthians 10. Listen to what he says there. He says, all things are lawful, quoting those who are rejoicing in their Christian liberty. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. That's how you're to treat this disagreement in the church. Love your brother. What's best for him? And don't lead him to violate his conscience by your behavior, by your exercising your freedom. I do feel compelled at this point to point out that in this whole thing, as a moderationist who abstains, I am not a weaker brother. You don't have to change your drinking behavior around me if you drink biblically the right way for the right reason. I am not going to be offended. I'm not going to judge you. I am not a weaker brother, but there are many weaker brothers and sisters among us who have been deeply damaged by alcohol abuse, either in their own lives or the lives of people around them, former alcoholics who struggle every day not to give in to the temptation to abuse alcohol, and just honest, well-meaning people who haven't quite seen the entire light on this issue. You need to love them. And work hard not to lead them astray by your behavior. Fourth, finally, and to my mind, the most important one, a good reason why 
A Christian who has the freedom to drink alcohol may choose not to. It's a desire to avoid temptation and a desire to pursue holiness. A desire to avoid temptation and pursue holiness. I want to quote from that same article I read a moment ago. The writer says, I think we're living in a culture so, that's so demanding. You never feel like you're good enough. It wears people down. People are exhausted at the end of the day. They go home and have a drink as a way to cope with all of this. A lot of people have to self-medicate because it would be hard for them to look in the mirror otherwise. If perfectionism doesn't kill you, the coping mechanisms will. That is the kind of culture we live in. The temptation to use alcohol, drugs, many other things, to cope with the pressures to be perfect, to be successful, to be cool, to meet up to whatever standard the world is putting on you. I have chosen just to not allow alcohol into my life or into my family's life, just to remove one of those many temptations out there. Maybe someday I'll change my mind and invite it into my life and enjoy it as a good blessing from God. But for right now, and it's been my practice, I don't really see myself changing in the near future. I want to serve God. I want to please him. I want to pursue holiness. I'm just glad that I don't have a temptation in my life that many of you do. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12, it says, All things are lawful to me. This is a different passage, but Paul's using that same claim of the Christian liberty professor. He says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. I will not be dominated by anything. I will not be dominated by wine. I will not be dominated by any created thing. I want to serve the Lord. I will look to the Lord for my sense of belonging, for my sense of acceptance. I will look to the Lord for my way to cope with the stresses and anxieties in my life. And I will look to the gospel for my deliverance from the pressure to be perfect. So it's a good option to choose to abstain from alcohol, but it's not a necessary one. And I admire and commend you if you're able to use it in a way that praises God, that shows thankfulness to him, and that glorifies him. Eat or drink to the glory of God. Kind of ironic at this point that I'm about to invite you to the Lord's table. (laughs) We serve both wine and grape juice. But in many ways, it seems to me what more appropriate ending to this passage. We've seen that God uses wine and fine food as an image of our ultimate hope of salvation that Christ will bring when he comes again. The Lord's Supper, as we eat the bread and drink the cup, is a foretaste of the wedding feast of the Lamb. And whether you take the wine or whether you take the grape juice, both of them represent the life that we have in Christ, the life that we had through his shed blood, the forgiveness, the new birth, the eternal life, and that's what we celebrate. And that's where our strength comes from, this means of grace. I serve a Lord who is abstaining right now. Do you know that? He's abstaining from wine. He said that very clearly. Luke 22, verse 18. I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. That's his choice. He doesn't require it of you. But it's a good choice. But if you drink, 
Drink thankfully. Drink to the glory of God. Whatever you may drink. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word of God, which we wrestle with to understand at times, but thank you that when we dig deep by the leading of your spirit, you give us so much wisdom to guide us through the difficult issues, the questions, the choices we have to make in life. Thank you for the book of Proverbs as we continue to work through it, to apply the wisdom of your word. And Lord, we pray that whatever brokenness, whatever weakness, whatever addiction might be in our lives, we pray that healing might come through the blood of Christ and that our hope might be in him alone and nothing in this created world. We now come to the table and we come thankfully for all the grace you have shown. In the name of Christ we pray, amen.